From beach towels to tea towels, and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Jim Warfare at tntradio.live. That's my email address as always. Thank you to those who send me messages. I particularly appreciate knowing where in the world you are mailing me from. And as I often say, I am not harvesting your data, I promise. I really don't know how to work an Excel spreadsheet. My wife has to pretty much show me how that thing works. So I have no idea how to do anything with your data. I just particularly enjoy know, knowing from where in the world you are listening. And I've had the most amazing places mentioned from all the way in Russia to Canada, to South America, Southern Latin America, whatever you call it. Uh, obviously people here in Africa, as you know, I'm at the bottom tip of Africa right, da- right now. How hot is it? It is 33 degrees Celsius. It's a scorcher. And uh, Alex and Joel and I will be with you for the next hour. If you're watching via the video feeds, via X, Rumble, uh, YouTube, wherever it is, I don't know, hi. Go to TNT's website. You can find all the links there. Jump into the live chat. As always, my name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. Bringing you a worldview. I like to hear what's going on around the world. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. It's a great pleasure to be chatting to you again, Stephen Sizer. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Pleasure. I look forward to our conversation, Jim. Yeah, I mean, the last time you and I chatted... um, we, we spoke about Christian Zionism, and I had no idea, if I was being honest, that it really was as problematic as actually what what it turns out to be. It, it, it's almost like an ideology, um, a cult, a dogma of sorts. Uh, let's, start with, let's start with that. What is Christian Zionism? Christian Zionism is basically Christian support for Zionism. Zionism itself is an ideology uh, that uh, arose at the end of the 19th century, um, aspiring to create a Jewish homeland uh, for Jewish refugees and emigres, uh, but a lot more than that, because they had expectations that much of the Middle East would become their state, that it would be for Jewish people, Jewish people alone, and uh, inevitably that would involve conflict with the indigenous people living there. Uh, but Christian Zionism preceded Jewish Zionism by at least 50 years mm. because it was Christians who promoted the Zionist movement. And and today, nine out of 10 Zionists in the world, at least nine out of 10 are Christians. So they dominate the movement as well as precede the origins of Jewish Zionism. Yeah, and I mean, and you aren't joking. I mean, if you look at the numbers, I mean, Christian Zionists in America, something like 60 or 70 million, and this includes a number of presidents. Definitely. John Hagee boasts about uh, 50 million conservative Christians standing up and defending 5 million Jewish people. He says in America, it's a match made in heaven. So there, even in that one quote, you've got the 10 to 1 ratio. Mm. Okay, before we continue, for those who don't know, what is your background? Um, I'm the founder and director of Peacemaker Trust, a UK charity dedicated to peacemaking and advocating for minorities where they're persecuted, human rights are suppressed, or reconciliation is needed. I'm a retired Anglican priest. Um, I, I, the Church of England fell out with me uh, last year, but I was retired anyway. 
Uh, I'm chair of uh, Convivencia, which is an alliance of Jewish, Muslim and Christian organizations advocating for uh, one democratic state in Palestine. And I'm on the board of uh, ICAD, the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. I'm a member of Jewish Network for Palestine uh, and uh, Sabil and Kairos, which are Palestinian uh, Christian organizations advocating for justice and peace. Yeah, you mentioned Palestine. Stephen, why does Palestine matter? Well, Palestine matters for many reasons. It's the bridge between Africa, Asia and um, Europe. Um, it's been historically uh, probably the most uh, controversial subject covered by the United Nations. It's been uh, the, the, the subject of more UN resolutions uh, than uh, any other country. Uh, you have chemical, biological and nuclear weapons loose in, uh, in uh, Israel at the moment, Israel-Palestine. Um, the uh, Palestinian diaspora, the Palestinian refugees, constitute the largest uh, refugee community in the world. Uh, and the, the conflict, and the conflict's a bad word because it's a settler colonial enterprise, just as it was in South Africa, Australia, uh, much of the world was colonized by European uh, powers. It's an extension of that. Um, it's, it's a conflict which has ramifications for uh, relationships between Christians and Muslims and Jews. So it proliferates and, and the scar, the, the unhealed wound, if you like, of the Palestinian cause impacts relationships right across the Middle East. And we see it uh, spiraling out with Iran and Pakistan uh, exchanging uh, a fire uh, in the last 24 hours. That's an extension of what's been happening with the Hutus. Uh, it's an extension of what's been happening in Lebanon and Syria. And all of them are linked to uh, the, 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 the present injustice of the genocide and ethnic cleansing going on in Gaza. So Palestine matters. Yeah, I've seen a lot of commentary uh, putting Palestine in inverted commas as if it has never existed. I know this is all part of the Zionist propaganda. Uh, Palestine uh, features on Roman maps 2000 years ago. Um, you know, Palestine uh, has existed for 2000 years at least, uh, you know, and, and certainly in terms of uh, being named Palestine, but the people go back four or 5,000 years long before uh, the Jewish uh, descendants of Abraham came into the land uh, from what is today Iraq. Um, you know, it, we don't need to waste time on history. What matters is that people there have lived there for generations. They are called Palestinians. They identify as Palestinians, and we must respect that right to self-determination. Mm. I was doing a little bit of reading a few days ago, um, Stephen, and um, it, it appears to me, unless I've misinterpreted the literature, before 1948, uh, there were Jews and Palestinians living right across that region fairly peacefully. They were indeed, uh, with, with occasional uh, localized uh, tensions. Um, the, again, we can go back to the Roman Empire and mm. the uh, revolt by the Zealots, uh, 66 AD, 70 AD, they were expelled from the land. And so the Jewish people became uh, refugees right across the Middle East. Um, in fact, today, the largest 
community of, 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 of Jews outside of Israel in the Middle East is in Iran. They've been there since the time of Cyrus. So there were Jewish <laughs> communities right across North Africa, in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Egypt. And in, in the conflict from the 1920s, 30s, particularly since the founding of the state of Israel, they were, they were forced out of the Arab states uh, or left voluntarily in the same way that the Zionists forced the Palestinians out of what became the state of Israel. Yeah, and, and ironically or paradoxically, there are a few million Muslims living in Israel as citizens quite peacefully. Yes, 20% of the uh, Israeli citizens are Muslim and Christian. Uh, they are Palestinians who were expelled in 1948, but managed to creep back in uh, or, or were uh, able to get to cities like Nazareth and some of the northern villages where there was a strong uh, Arab uh, uh, presence and they were able to withstand attempts to expel them out of the land uh, by the Zionist military. Um, and so today they are the vestiges, if you like, of those who'd lived right across what is today Israel uh, in when it was Palestine. And the people living in Gaza, the 2.8 million living in Gaza, um, most of them are refugees who still have the keys to their homes in what, uh, what, what is today Israel. Yeah, let's just talk about that refugee thing for a moment. So 1947 to 48, there was something called the Nakba when I believe around 700,000 Palestinians were forced out uh, for the creation of Israel. Now, they've never been allowed to return. Is that right? They haven't. And it's ironic because when the UN recognized the state of Israel, it was conditional. It was conditional on the right of return for those 700,000 Arabs. So uh, one could argue that uh, the UN should review Israel's right to exist since it has uh, denied the other side of the um, decision that was made by the UN to uh, to allow the Palestinians to return to their homes. So any solution, uh, whether it be a two state solution or a one state, must include the right of return for what is now between six and seven million Palestinian refugees around the world. Many of them will not want to return any more than many Jews don't want to have to go and live in Israel. They're in, enjoying the privileges and security in South Africa, in, in the UK and other countries. But for those Palestinians who want to return uh, and reclaim their land, to reclaim their homes, or at least receive compensation, that right is enshrined in UN, uh, UN resolutions. So does Israel have a right to exist? Yes, I would argue that Israel has the right to exist in the pre-67 borders. Uh, it, it, it was uh, recognized by the international community, uh, but it was, ironically, Israel's the only country in the world that's never recognized its own borders. It's never declared them. Everyone else knows what the borders are, Egypt, uh, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. Uh, but Israel's never declared its borders. You have to ask why, and presumably that's because they still want more land, and they clearly want what is now the occupied Palestinian territories and Gaza, which they annexed, uh, in 1967, they took by force, uh, which itself is inadmissible. The acquisition of territory by war is inadmissible in international law, which is why the occupation and colonization of Palestine and Gaza is illegal in international law. Uh, but those, those um, areas, Palestine, the West Bank, 
and the Golan from Syria and uh, and uh, Gaza must be returned to form the Palestinian state. That's that's what uh, the international community is, has uh, decreed. The, uh, the the problem is uh, European powers and America won't recognize Palestinian Palestine as a state. Most countries in the world have already done so, but the ones that matter in the Security Council won't go that far. They call about they talk about two state solution, but they won't recognize both states. It's it's hypocritical. Why is that though? Why is there this this tug of war internationally in terms of recognizing the state of, um, well, I suppose, well, I'm, I'm guessing all the states within the yeah Palestine yeah. Well, one has to acknowledge the influence and the power of the Zionist lobby. Um, you know, the reality is you can count on one hand the number of U.S. Uh, senators. Uh, or congressmen who are in any shape or form questioning Israel's policies in uh, Gaza or questioning Israel's actions vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, or dare I say it, recognizing the Palestinians as uh, as having right to a state. Virtually every single U.S. politician depends heavily on funding and uh, and support from uh, Zionist groups. Um, mm. Just give you one example. When if if you were standing as a new senator or congressman, you would be visited by APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, and they would interview you and assess how supportive you are of Israel. They would ask you to write a paper explaining your views on Israel, and if it didn't match up with theirs, uh, you'd get uh, a poor mark, and uh, they would ask you to correct it. And if you dug your heels in and refused, then they would they would advise you regrettably that their funding and support will go to your opponents. You know, it's it's so true in the UK. Eighty percent yeah. of eighty percent of British politicians are either conservative friends of Israel or Labour friends of Israel. They queue up to show their support for Israel. They uh, they've been very reluctant to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, it's it's quite lamentable, and I'm sure it's the same in Australia. Thankfully, uh, the leadership in South Africa is challenging this um, this European and American uh, viewpoint on Israel-Palestine. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that after the break, uh, just in a moment. But uh, before we go to the break, there's a comment in the live chat from Michelle, who's listening from Florida, and she says, uh, uh, "Israel has never declared their borders. I'll be looking into that." and and as it turns out, I looked into it, and it is true. Israel has never officially declared its borders. That's true. That's true. And the reason is, is if you look at the maps, which the early Zionists published, Theodor Herzl, uh, Jabotinsky, and others, it was from Egypt to Iraq. In fact, when the Balfour Declaration was published by Lord Balfour in 1917, it was to preempt a German declaration, and it was... Um, a means of, uh, of of enticing, if you like, the Zionist movement to back Britain against Germany. It was a deal. It was a quid pro quo. You'll get a presence in the British Empire. They weren't promising a state. They were promising them a homeland in the British Empire. The problem was we had to promise the Arabs we'd look after them as well because they'd helped us defeat the Germans, the Ottoman Empire. Mm. So we needed their armies, the Arab armies. So we promised the land two ways, but we promised the French 
two years earlier that we keep it for ourselves. The aim was that France would get what is today Lebanon and Syria. Britain would get what is today uh, Palestine, Jordan and uh, the Gulf states. So about 1922-23, Churchill gave uh, Jordan to the Hashemite kingdom as a reward, as a as a uh, a thank you for their support in defeating the Germans. That infuriated the Zionist movement because they thought that was part of Palestine. That was going to be part of their state, which is why in the 20s and 30s, the Arabs and the Israeli Zionists were targeting the British because neither side was getting what they wanted. Um, and mm -hmm. so the exit strategy, the, the partition plan, which we have to live with today in terms of the borders, is Britain's exit strategy to get out and force the Jews and the Arabs to fight each other. All right. Just uh, before we go to the break, also, there's a question here wanting a, 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 some clarity on the term Zionist. And I'm going to add to that uh, Jew as well as Israelite. I'll get to your answer after the break. Stephen, uh, my name is Jim. This is TNT. TNT's Mark Morano. This just in. We have a new way that's proven effective in dealing with climate protesters who deign to block highways, streets, and other public areas. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this appears to be the most effective way. We have a uh, we have a field shot, a correspondent on the scene. Let's go to clip four and take a look at how to deal with climate protesters when they block your way on your morning commute. I don't want to see protests shut down, but obviously when you're blocking traffic and you're doing that, you need to be dealt with. I thought this was a great vigilante way of dealing with it. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. I didn't think I'd survive, but I did ask for help and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. Today's News Talk Radio. Now we're talking. TNT. Stephen Wise, would you mind clarifying the terms Zionist, Jew, and um, I suppose Israeli? Gladly, gladly. Um, this is not meant to be a plug, but in my book, Zionist Christian Soldiers, and you can access it all on my website, stephensizer.com for free, um, I, I have to do this in the book. And so this is what I wrote. Um, you know, it's true that at various times in the past, churches and church leaders have tolerated or incited anti-Semitism and even attacks on Jewish people. Racism is a sin and without excuse. Anti-Semitism must, must be repudiated unequivocally. However, we must not confuse apples and oranges. Anti-Zionism is not the same thing as anti-Semitism, despite attempts to broaden the definition. 
Criticizing a political system as racist is not racist. Judaism is a religious system. Israel is a sovereign nation. Zionism is a political system. These three are not synonymous. I respect Judaism. I repudiate anti-Semitism. I encourage interfaith dialogue. I defend Israel's right to exist within internationally recognized borders. But like many Jews, I disagree with a political system that gives preference to expatriate Jews born elsewhere in the world while denying the same rights to Arab Palestinians born in the country. Jimmy Carter is not alone in describing Zionism practiced by the present government as a form of apartheid. And it's thank, you know, thankfully, more and more uh, human rights organizations are recognizing that Zionism is racism. Zionism is apartheid and it has no place uh, in, in contemporary society. So then I guess a, a, an obvious question, Stephen, and by the way, I think I referred to you Stephen Wise paradoxically, um, which is a mistake, I know, but Stephen Wise was the former chief rabbi of the US. My, my deepest apologies. I'm not quite sure why I said Stephen Wise. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> I, I think an obvious question is why is Christian Zionism so attractive, so appealing? Why are so many millions of people attached to the idea? That's a, an important question. Uh, we can answer it historically and we can ask it, uh, answer it in a contemporary sense. Um, if you go back to the 19th century when America was uh, newly formed, independent from uh, the British Empire, um, it went through a traumatic era of the Civil War and, um, and, and alongside that, there was a major shift in the expectation of Christian leaders uh, from being optimistic about uh, empire and about civilizing the world and, uh, and bringing Christianity to the heathens. Um, there was a lot of doom and gloom and pessimism about the end of the world and Jesus coming back. Into that came uh, one influential uh, Irish uh, pastor called John Nelson Darby. He was one of the founders of the Brethren, and he had a very simple theology that basically said, you take the Bible and you can split it in half and say, these passages relate to the Jews and these passages relate to the Christians. It's called dispensationalism. The idea that God has two chosen peoples rather than one chosen people made up of all nationalities. And that very simplistic theology basically argued that um, the Jews get back to the land and then Jesus comes back. And the role of the church is to help facilitate it. And alongside that, he argued that the destiny of the church was linked to the destiny of Israel. Israel remains God's chosen people, blessed. And therefore, he looked to promises in Genesis, for example, where God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All nations on earth will be blessed through you. And he, he argued and, and his disciples, people like uh, James Brooks, um, uh, Cyrus Schofield, William Blackstone, many of the early influential Christian leaders in the 19th century, D.L. Moody was another one. They took his ideas about a failing church and restored Israel and linked it to this 
this, if you like, this prosperity gospel, the idea that if we bless Israel, God will bless us. And as America became more and more prosperous, more and more influential uh, in terms of uh, the global uh, the global economy, um, as we know, in the 20th century, the world was divided in two. You were either with the communist world or the free democratic world. The communist world was atheistic. And so Christianity was blended, if you like, with democracy and and and, and synonymous with American foreign policy, European foreign policy. Today, the churches in the States, yes, there are the historic European denominations, as you have them in Australia and South Africa, the Anglicans, the Baptists, the Methodists, and so on. They're the historic European denominations. But America is unusual because it has, because of its size and its influence, you have a lot of, if I, I would call them self-appointed pastors, television evangelists, pastors of independent churches, uh, charismatic churches, Pentecostal churches. And invariably, they buy into this theology that God is blessing us materially as long as we support Israel. I used to think the prosperity gospel was uh, was something that poor people aspired to. And yes, they do. But the prosperity gospel is actually popular among the wealthy, among middle class, upper class. Why? Because if I'm wealthy, I can keep it because God is blessing me. So it becomes a, mm. a self-fulfilling prophecy. So a lot of Christian Zionist thinking is bound up with, we want God to bless us. It's a selfish theology. We want God to bless us. Therefore, we look after Israel. And frankly, most Israeli Jews are American or European. So they are, quote, like us. You know, mm. we spoke earlier about Jews in the Middle East. Uh, they look like Arabs because they've lived in the Middle East for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The Safahadi, you know, they are second class Jews below the Ashkenazis, who are the white European, Russian, American Jews. And below them are the African Jews, the Falashis yeah. from Ethiopia. And then below them are the Palestinians. So it's a it's a segregated society. Uh, but that's one of the reasons why Christian Zionism is so popular in the churches today. Yeah, you mentioned Schofield. Uh, let's let's touch on that just briefly. Um, that's one of the most uh, influential reference Bibles ever. It is, and it was a it was a an enlightened decision to take the text of the Bible. Most Bibles look like this. You know, you've got the text, and you might have some cross references down down the column. Um, and you might possibly have a few footnotes to clarify an ambiguous word. But what Schofield did was he made a study Bible with half the Bible is half the page is his footnotes. And the footnotes are, are, are based on Darby's theology, this idea that parts of the Bible relate to the Jews and parts of the Bible relate to the church. And he argued, again, this is a very simplistic, literalistic view. Every promise God made to the Jews that has not been fulfilled to the letter must be fulfilled in the future. So if God promised Abraham everything from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates, now you can argue that David in, in, in uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, we find references to Egypt and, 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 and the Euphrates, implying that 
the kingdom of David, King David did extend that far, therefore the promise was fulfilled. Zionists today would argue, no, it hasn't. And that's why Herzl and his friends had that map, because that was what they wanted. And that's perhaps why they won't recognize their borders yet. Christian Zionism, if you push them, will argue that the land God gave to Abraham has not been given yet and therefore will be given to them in the future after the Palestinians have been expelled from Gaza, after they've wiped out the people in Lebanon and Syria, God will give the Jews all of that land. It's controversial. Not all Zionists believe it, but it's there in the Schofield Bible. So what you're saying is all roads lead to the current state of Israel. It's the apple of God's eye. That's how they put it. You know, if God has a special relationship with the Jews, that's a, that's separate then then the church again this is what um darby said the church is a parenthesis to god's continuing purpose for israel meaning the church is plan b now most christians would argue that jesus is the center of the of the bible jesus is uh central to our faith not israel so in a in a sense christian zionism has substituted israel for jesus that's why we would regard it as a heresy Okay, but now someone might say, all right, but you're just talking academics, right? It's, this is just, uh, you're just talking theory. Has, has Christian Zionism actually had any real world implications? Has it actually had any effect on, say, American foreign policy? Very definitely, sadly. Um, there are seven, we won't go into detail, but there are several tenets of Christian Zionists, their doctrines, if you like. The first is God... Uh, has a special plan for the Jews. They're God's chosen people. Secondly, God gave them the land. Third, he gave them Jerusalem as their, temp uh, as their capital. The temple is their place of atonement. They've got to have it rebuilt. And there's going to be a war of Armageddon before Jesus comes back. Now, if that's your framework, if that's your doctrines, if you like, every one of them has a political implication. And Christian Zionist organizations like the International Christian Embassy, Bridges for Peace, Christian Friends of Israel, Christians United for Israel, those are the four big ones. They support funding Jews to move from Russia and Eastern Europe and other parts of the world to go and live in Israel. They will fund that. They will fund the Aliyah, if you like, the return of Jews to Palestine. They support and adopt the settlements. There's an organization called Christian Friends of Israeli Communities. They will twin your church with a settlement. Uh, you know, that may sound a bit eccentric, but when you realize your church may have 20,000 members and the settlement may have 50 people, you can see where the power lies. So they will adopt the settlements. Um, successive uh, presidents have all been lobbied to move the U.S. Embassy back to Jerusalem. No country in the world apart from the U.S. recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel because in 67, the last of the embassies left Jerusalem because it had been annexed by Israel illegally. All the embassies are in Tel Aviv. So the pressure has been on to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem to recognize Jerusalem as the exclusive undivided capital of Israel. Trump did that because he wanted to to please the Christian Zionist lobby. In one quote, he said, I'm really surprised. He said, we moved the capital to of Israel. Notice he said the capital to Israel. And that's what they did by moving the embassy. He said the Jews weren't particularly interested, but the Christian Zionists were, i.e. it fulfilled their prophecy. So it, it's political. 
um, and the temple. You'll find Christian organizations supporting the Temple Mount faithful, the Temple Mount movement, which is committed to destroying the Dome of the Rock and rebuilding the Jewish temple. And, and worst of all, if your theology is pessimistic about the future, if you believe there's going to be an imminent war of Armageddon, then you're continually looking at your newspaper for evidence. And so you're saying, oh, look, Iran and Pakistan are now killing each other. Look, um, you know, Israel is reclaiming the land of Gaza. This must bring us closer to that event. Most Christian Zionists think they'll be raptured to heaven, so they're not going to suffer in this Armageddon war. But if you think like that, if you're pessimistic about the future, then you're not going to waste your time on climate change, on feeding the poor. And you certainly are not going to support peace negotiations that require Israel to withdraw from land that it's occupied in the West Bank or in Gaza or the Golan. So you're actively opposing the UN and international law and peace processes because you believe Israel's on a higher plane. They're accountable to God, not international law. Uh, you know, it's why Netanyahu quoted about killing the Amalekites, the Amaleks, to justify what was going on in Gaza. He was, he was um, speaking to his Christian Zionist colleagues, explaining to them that this is necessary and it's a fulfillment of what God told us to do 3,000, 4,000 years ago. I've actually seen exactly what you're talking about. Uh, when I engage with people regarding what's going on now in Gaza, uh, the Christian Zionists, and of course the Zionists, um, don't mind at all what's going on. 30,000 dead, oh well, Hamas shouldn't have attacked on the 7th of October. Basically, Israel can do anything at once. Um, and and they'll defend it because Israel is just defending itself. That's how it's, that's the argument. And it's entirely fallacious because again, if we go back to international law, um, Israel does not have a right to defend itself because in international law, if you've stolen someone's land, you don't have the right of self-defense. It's the person whose land you've stolen has the right of self-defense. Does that make sense? Israel as the yep. occupying power doesn't have the right to defend itself when it's occupying someone else's land. It's the Palestinians who have the right of self-defense. Um, yeah, and, and every time you hear a, uh, an Israeli politician or a Christian leader uh, uh, go on about um, Israeli deaths and every death must be mourned, every death is tragic and, and we must oppose the killing of civilians, whoever they are. But whenever that happens, they are devaluing the lives of Palestinians. Um, you know, I wonder how many, you know, if, if the Israelis have a figure in mind, how high they're willing to go before they think they've gone too far. I think they've gone way, way too far. It's, it's, it's genocide, it's ethnic cleansing. And that's why I think next week we should have an interim uh, decision from the International Court of Justice uh, on whether they are going to call for a ceasefire, whether there is sufficient evidence that genocide is or may occur in the immediate future. And that should be enough uh, for the South African uh, barristers and lawyers. Uh, their arguments, I think, are convincing. Uh, if the ICJ does not call a halt, um, then uh, then I will be very dis discouraged. 
I doubt very much whether Israel will care to hoots what the ICJ says, because they really couldn't care less what the rest of the world says. They're going to get, go ahead with their agenda. But it will help put pressure on the US and European governments not to be sending weapons for Israel to use in Gaza and to impose sanctions and to, um, to you know, for civil society to get much more behind BDS, boycotts, divestments and sanctions, to isolate Israel, to make them pay for what they're doing in Gaza. Stephen Starzer, I'll be back with you momentarily. My name is Jerome. This is TNT. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. I once worked with the man who was a naval aviator, a carrier pilot. And as Norm worked his way up the ranks, he eventually became an XO, executive officer, on an overnight watch. There was an incident on the flight deck, and Norm handled that with a plum. And still he lost his job the next morning, because when the captain awoke, he didn't enjoy hearing that there had been a problem, even though Norm had handled it professionally and perfectly with no problem whatsoever. You see, Norm was writing checks on his boss's account, and that's a no-no. Well, guess what else is a no-no? Being second in command of our military, the Secretary of Defense, and neither letting your boss, the president, nor even your deputy know that you're going into hospital for cancer surgery and that you're going to be in ICU for four days. This is unconscionable. Lloyd Austin, as a retired four-star general, knows better. In fact, he needs to be recalled to active duty, court-martialed, and stripped of his pension. For MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Prescription drug pricing points to corporate mountain. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. It's about your right to be informed. Today, there are real threats to press freedom. And your right to know about the world around us. We must protect our right to know, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Before it's too late, understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. TNT. You're with Jeremy now on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Stephen, uh, is Hamas a terrorist organization? I knew you are going to ask me this one. Um, it's problematic because if I say... <laughs> If hypothetically <laughs> I said uh, a negative word, there might be a knock at my door in the next 10 minutes from the police because Britain has declared Hamas to be a terrorist organization. Um, if we unpack that and define terrorism, terrorism is, and without looking at my dictionary, um, about creating terror, fear, at best, fear and anxiety among people through to violence, killing. And what would what would distinguish between terrorism and legitimate warfare would be the rules of engagement that it's combatants against combatants. If a combatant puts a white flag up, they surrender. You don't shoot them. Uh, you feed them. You protect them. You look after them. And you certainly don't kill civilians. Uh, you don't destroy their property. You don't destroy uh, their 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 land or their homes. If we use that as a definition, we can say that based on what happened on the seventh of October and subsequently, uh, Hamas has committed terrorist acts. 
individual Hamas members have. Um, but I would want to argue very strongly that we must apply the same term to states as well. Uh, we might easily say, well, North Korea is a terrorist state or um, Israel. I can't think of any others. Uh, but I think Israel is a terrorist state as well because it has committed terrorism in Gaza. America. Uh, but it's committing terrorism for 75 years. Uh, since the, since 1948, there have been massacres, there have been mm. genocide, uh, there have been uh, pogroms, and they have held uh, Palestinians either a second-class citizen in Israel or under military occupation in Palestine or in an open prison, the largest open prison in the world, in Gaza. They are starving them, denying them medical aid, denying them water, food, shelter. That is genocide, and that's terrorism, in my opinion. So if we're going to label Hamas as a terrorist organization, we must label uh, Israel as uh, not only a terrorist organization, but 10 times worse than what Hamas has done. But Stephen, Hamas wants to wipe Israel off the face of Earth. Um, Israel needs to uh, not allow that to happen. Uh, that's not true. Um, if you look at the uh, most recent uh, Hamas um, manifesto, it has rejected and denied that it wishes to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Uh, it's willing to recognize uh, Israel, uh, but it will not recognize the occupation. It's the same with the attitude toward Iran. I'm not defending Iran, but um, you often hear people say that Iran wants to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. It does not. It uh, as I said earlier, the largest uh, community of Jews in the Middle East outside of Israel live in Iran, and they're not queuing up to leave. They've been there for thousands of years. They're happy to live there as Iranian Jews. What is what Iran is is dedicated to is liberating Palestine and recognizing the right of Palestinians to self-determination. It wants to see an end to Zionism, but not an end to either Judaism or Israel. And I believe that's true for Hamas, although I'm not defending them. I want to make that clear to those <laughs> who may be listening in from the judicial services here in the UK. Um, what does, okay, hang on. I'm trying to get a picture. What does Palestine look like if it's recognized? The international community has recognized the pre-1967 borders as Palestine plus Gaza. Okay, so that so we're talking so that we didn't. Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, I could easily find a map of Palestine for, as as we're chatting, um, but it's basically. It's, it's, it would, it, we are, would it include would it include Israel as we currently know it? No, it wouldn't. It's the West Bank. It's 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 the West Bank from Janine in the north down to Hebron in the south, and uh, it's. And from Jerusalem, it's like a kidney shape. You know, a kidney mm. is a kidney bean yeah. or a kidney shape. Um, it's it's essentially the West Bank. I'm quickly trying to find a map to show you uh, what it looks like. Um, but it, 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 it means up, it means that is it means that Israel will have to give up some land. It has to give up a significant chunk of land from Nablus in the north down to. Um, down to Hebron in the south and the Gaza Strip. It's what Israel mm. was living with from 1948 to 1967. Yeah, but they're not uh, going to do that no. now. I'm sorry? They won't allow that to happen now. 
Precisely. And that's that's mm. problematic. Uh, here's, here's a map. I don't know if you can uh, see it's, that. Uh, sort of. Yeah, sort of. Okay, okay. Um, okay, let me explain this in a very simple, as simple as I can. Um, you've gone to see your grandmother, grandfather, and they spoil you like anything because you're their darling grand grandchild. And um, they give you the sweet jar and uh, and they say, have a sweet. <laughs> and you, you put your hand in the jar and you grab three sweets and you can't get your hand out of the jar because you're a greedy little kid. You can't get your hand out. You've got to give up one of the sweets to get your hand out. Israel has got its hand in the cookie jar and it wants three sweets. It wants three things and it can only have two of them. It's really very simple. Uh, kids can get this in one. It wants to be a Jewish state. It wants all the land and it wants to be a democracy. But it can only have three of them. Sorry, it can only have two of them. The two state solution based on the 1967 border says give up the West Bank and Gaza and you can be a Jewish democracy. Arab Israelis can live in Israel as second class citizens or they can go and live in Palestine. And Israeli settlers living in Palestine can either live under Palestinian control or they can go back and live in Israel. But that's the two state solution. And as you said, will Israel give up the settlements? No. So what's the alternative? The alternative is Israel must give up being a Jewish state. That's the one state solution. Democracy in all the land with equal rights for all citizens and the right of return for those expelled. So Jews and, and Palestinians living as equal citizens. It's what happened at the end of apartheid in South Africa. Yes, you still have inequality, but it's not apartheid. In the US, before the Civil War, there was slavery in the South and freedom in the North. Yes, inequality is still there in America, but it's no longer slavery or segregation. You can live anywhere. So, but will Israel give up being a Jewish state? No. Well, if it won't give up being a Jewish state and it won't give up all the land, we have to explain that it's not a democracy. It is an apartheid state. And that's why boycotts, divestments and sanctions are necessary to persuade Israel either to share the land or share share the land as two states or share citizenship. But as long as it won't choose, it cannot be regarded as a Western democracy. It is a racist apartheid state. And as we see, in order to in order to maintain its control of Palestinians, it has to commit systematic, uh, periodic genocide or ethnic cleansing, as we're seeing in Gaza. They, 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 they believe in disproportionate retaliation. You hit me, I'll hit you back 10 times harder so you won't hit me again. But that okay, would so solve the problem. That solves it. Right. Okay, so then, Stephen, in your mind, uh, what significance or symbolism even does the ICJ case between South Africa and Israel mean, irrespective of the outcome? It's put into the... Uh, international, the highest court in the world, the UN court, is put into that domain a case with evidence of genocide. And it's referred to Rwanda. It's referred to uh, 
Kosovo and, uh, and and all that happened in the former Yugoslavia, what happened in um, in Cambodia, in in places like Yugoslavia and in Rwanda, they were recognised as genocide, and the perpetrators have been uh, investigated, tried, and convicted, um, and imprisoned in some cases. And so there is precedent for a similar investigation. What the ICJ is doing uh, is uh, is investigating whether it is occurring or it may occur, i.e. it may get worse. And if so, it can create a ruling that says that must, there must be a ceasefire, Israel must withdraw. And if Israel refuses, it becomes much harder for the US, Britain and Germany and, and Australia, for example, to stand by Israel against the UN, against international law. It gets embarrassing, and that's what we want. We want embarrassment. Uh, it's like a snowball going down the hill, because once this uh, is achieved, then specific war crimes charges will be brought against not only Israeli politicians and military officials, but also British and American officials, because at the moment, South African lawyers are bringing charges against British politicians for funding Israel's weapons in Gaza, similarly in the States. So it's like a snowball going down the hill, like apartheid. Um, I produced a, a, a booklet for World Vision 20 years ago on Palestine, and I used the word apartheid. They couldn't publish it because 20 years ago, very few people were talking about apartheid. That momentum has changed. When um, when Betzalem, the Israeli human rights organization, declared Israel to be an apartheid state, when Human Rights Watch added, when Amnesty International declared Israel to be an apartheid state, it becomes increasingly hard for those who are wishing to defend Israel to deny these reports. And now the Anglican Church of South Africa has declared Israel to be an apartheid state. And we're using that to try and put pressure on other churches to recognize the evidence that's, you know, it's, it's, it's staring them in the face, but they mm. refuse to look at it. Uh, but the time well, will come, God willing, when it will end, when apartheid will end in Palestine. Well, we are coming into the last few minutes. So I, I suppose the question I want to ask you is, um, that light at the end of the tunnel, is it a train coming towards you or do you see hope? Um, I do see light at the end of the tunnel. The question is how far the tunnel is away. Um, sometimes people <laughs> give me a, they give me a book to read. Uh, you know, they give me a book to read and I, and I, I think, ah, how many pages? Ah, 300 pages. That's going to take me a week. So I read the last page and if I like the last page, you know, the heroine wins, the hero wins, you know, the bad guy dies. I read the last page. And if I like the last page, I might read it. Well, the last page of the Bible, and I know I'm speaking to Christians here. If you read the last page of the Bible, it's about the end of war. It talks about their, uh, God wiping away the tears from their eyes. No more suffering, no more war, no more death, no more pain. The old order of things has passed away. Uh, the tree, the tree of life is in, in the middle of the, of the heavenly Jerusalem that's come down and it says the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. If that's the end we are looking forward to when we have a new heaven and new earth, that's why God calls us to be peacemakers, 
to be not widow makers, but peacemakers, to have a ministry of reconciliation because it's worth it and because it is going to bring about, humanly speaking, what we hope for, which is described at the end of the Bible. So there is light at the end. Uh, I believe that the arc of history bends toward justice, that uh, war criminals do not and will not uh, uh, have immunity. And uh, yes, there will be more conflict. Yes, there'll be more deaths and suffering, but we must commit ourselves to justice, peace and reconciliation for Israel, for Palestine and through them for the surrounding nations. You were a bit nervous about plugging your own uh, book earlier, but I'm giving you the opportunity to plug away. Uh, well, simply to say, everything I've ever written, uh, I've written, uh, my PhD was a look at the origins of Christian Zionism, its political agenda and theology. And then I wrote a, a kind of more friendly uh, book with shorter sentences, looking at the Bible, Israel and the church. <laughs> and both of them are accessible from... Um, uh, from the internet on, on, on Amazon or from bookshops. Um, but you can access all of the texts from my website, stephensizer.com. It's all there for free. All my sermons, my articles, books, it's all there, plunder away. And then my other charity, the one that um, employs me, is called peacemakers.ngo. And if you've got any spare cash and want to support peacemaking, go to peacemakers.ngo and you'll have an opportunity to get behind what we're trying to do in the world today. But thank you. Reverend Dr. Stephen Sizer, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Pleasure. Thank you. I know the pleasure is all mine. This is a fascinating conversation. I would love to have you back um, in, the, in the not too distant future. I think it's a really important conversation. What's going on in the Middle East nope. is not going anywhere. So I think this is one of these conversations that is always going to be timely um, and topical. So yeah. uh, I'll, if, 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 if yeah. you're willing, I would love to have you back. Sure, sure. I mean, we, 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 on this one, we, we graduated from Schofield to Christian Zionism. We can mm. look at interfaith dialogue. We can look at many other aspects, or we can Fantastic. drill down how um, US foreign policy is influenced by the Zionist lobby, that kind of thing. Plenty of options. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Jim, uh, thank do you send you very me an email? Much. No, it's a great pleasure. Uh, please send me an email, Jim, Jim Warfare at, uh, sorry, yes, go on, Steve, quickly. Sorry, this wasn't live, was it? It is live. I just want let me just quickly wrap up if you don't mind. <laughs> uh, send me an email, Jim Warfare at tntradio.live. Thank you to everybody who was watching uh, via the live feed. Uh, thanks for all the comments in the live chat. I do have them open, but I, you know, I can I can only respond to the relevant ones. Uh, let me know what you thought of the conversation. I thoroughly enjoy this. It's very very important. I'm definitely going to come back to this topic in the very near future. Um, and uh, I think that's pretty much most of my housekeeping. Uh, as always, the two Aussies on the other side of of my screen have made sure that I sound somewhat professional. Um, always thankful to have Alex and Joel around. Um, yeah, Alex, I think that's about it, hey? On, on behalf of Joel, Alex, and myself, my name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. Mm -hmm.